Good morning, guys. Yes, good morning. It's good to see you. I'm going to go over here and grab a stool real quick because I want options. Um, I'm going to pray. If It's a funny thing. We get to this season where we sing these familiar hymns and Christmas songs. And I don't know about you, but I absolutely love Christmas songs and hymns. I think they have the best theology in them. They are rich and beautiful. The trouble is, is I can never make my way through them because I always choke up and, and get emotional. And as we were singing, uh, well, Joy to the World, but also especially I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, those lyrics combined with, with what's going on in our world, I just couldn't make my way through that song. So I want us to just pray through the spirit of that song. And I think it was a... Uh, Longfellow song, right? Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And he wrote that song. If you've been around here for several years, you remember me talking through that and Shelley, where Wadsworth or Longfellow wrote that song as he got news that his he lost his wife. And then he got this word that his son had been lost in the Civil War, and as he's in the middle of writing this song, he's overwhelmed by hatred and violence and despair. But then you can hear him come full circle in this song, and it's so... I'm sorry, this is awkward, but it's just so beautiful to me. And I want to pray through it, because our, our world needs that prayer. So let's pray. God, I'm grateful for poets. I know there are probably some poets in this room who have this gift at articulating what's deep in the human experience and writing it in such a way that brings our feelings and emotions right to the front and center. And as we sing and Say these words, but in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so right now, Jesus, for the people across the world, in many areas, who are journeying from one place to another as refugees just to keep their, their families safe and fed and alive. Or in the Ukraine where, because of a hateful and arrogant and maniacal leader, there's an area of the world where people and families and people who are alone are going through war for a second year, wondering if the next bomb is going to hit their home. And in this holy land that we talk about every single week in our scriptures, there's people with no clue if their loved ones are alive still. 
families who've been torn apart, villages that have been wiped out, hostages that are still hostages. We just cry out to you, Prince of Peace. Cry out to you, Jesus, who said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are children of God. They are are in the family because the family of God is a family of peacemakers. So we ask for an end to violence, an end to war. We ask for ceasefires. We ask for a silencing of guns in the city of Milwaukee. So that we can sing that that last verse of I heard the bells with the fullness of hearts that are overflowing. That says that, then ring the bells more loud and clear. God is not dead and he does not sleep. Overwhelming the despair with the confidence that Jesus, you will come. Like you did, like you, in the first advent, when people were longing for you to come and deliver this world from, from all that's holding it back in the sin and the evil and the darkness, we long for the same thing to happen, Jesus. For you to come in peace, for you to, for you to arrive in such a way that the nations actually prove your righteousness, like the songs say. So we just stand with our brothers and sisters around the world who live in violence and uncertainty. We stand with our brothers and sisters in this room or who are listening online, who are dealing with grief and loss and heartache and coming to this time of, of year and feeling conflicted. We stand with our brothers and sisters in this room who are watching online, who are in this city, who are part of the church that we say, would you come, Lord Jesus? Fill this world with the joy and the love and the hope and the peace that you have to give us. And so now would you, with your word, with, your, with the scriptures, would you teach us how to be your people? Just like you were teaching the Israelites how to be, teaching them how to be your people, how to follow you who you are, would you do the same with us? Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the church. Thank you for this time that we get to share with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. There's this idea. There's this idea that um, I think we don't really name or actually kind of talk about, but I think we assume when it comes to our Christian life, our, our journey with Jesus. And there's this idea that, I, that kind of somehow magically along the way as you say yes to Jesus, as you kind of, you've gone through maybe, maybe if you're a good Christian and you were brought up in a Christian home, you went through Sunday school, Right? How many of you, Sunday school or kids' church or whatever, that was a normal thing for you? At least half of us, and we all know that some of you didn't raise your hands, who that's your reality. 
For, some of, for many of us, though, within the faith, we feel like we've been given this deposit. Maybe some of us, if we were good Lutherans or Catholics, we went through catechism class. I went through catechism class in my eighth grade year, got into trouble, but I learned a lot. I remember breaking a table in Pastor Sheck's confirmation by trying to be funny and having it fall and be the class clown, and I had to actually learn a carpentry lesson and put that table back together. I'm trying to say I, I, had, I learned from my, my mistakes, boys. <laughs> Some of us went through confirmation class. Some of us maybe said yes to Jesus later in life, and then if we were good evangelicals, we went to what's called an alpha group, right? right? Maybe we, we learned kind of the ABCs and the one, two, threes of what it means to be a Christian, or maybe we've been part of a number of Bible studies. Who's been part of more than five Bible studies? Raise your hand. Good job. Now, for many of us who this is the reality, we kind of feel like we've, we've if you've got a smartphone, you have these operating system downloads, right? And you, gotta, you, you plug it in at night, and you push download, and it just kind of, the whole operating system just, boosh, your phone's got it. We kind of feel like maybe that's how it is with understanding the ways of God and what it means to be a Christian, that we've received the download, right? That we kind of got it when it comes to God. Do you know what I'm talking about? I've been in the scriptures my whole life. I've been studying them. I've been in Bible studies. I've taken alpha groups. I've been through confirmation. I've been through multiple denominations, kind of formational studies. I know about God. And it's not just me, Pastor Andy, saying this. It's most of us kind of just, when we go to church, many of us just kind of expect to be told what we already know, confirming what we already know. Many psychiatrists would call this confirmation bias. Just tell me what I already know because I'm already an expert at it. And when you introduce some new data, maybe it doesn't compute as well. When we read the scriptures and we read about, we're in the book of Exodus, so when you, when you read about the Israelites and you read about this man named no, Moses, Moses of all people, he got that operating system download. He's got Yahweh understood. He's got Yahweh covered. He, he understands what it, who Yahweh is, who God is. He's clear about what Yahweh and God has, what God has called Moses to. Moses gets it. Moses has to lead the whole people of God. Of course, he's gotten that download and he knows everything there is to know about Yahweh, right? And the Israelites, of course, they're the people of God. They're the chosen nation, right? Of course, they know God, and they know how God works, and how God operates, and they trust God fully. What we're going to see is there's something different in our text going on today. This text is going to be pointing us in a a different direction, and it's going to invite us into this new reality as Christians of following Jesus. Maybe we don't quite know. So if you've been around Bruce City Church for the last couple of months, you'd know that we've been going through the book of Exodus, this epic, crazy story that has inspired several Hollywood productions from Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston to all the way to the Prince of Egypt. And a number of movies in between, every week I talk to somebody who's like, oh, did you see this movie? Did you see that movie? The answer mostly is no. But this story has inspired 
movies and in, in, it's captivated people for generations. It's, it's a formational story for the Jewish people and so in many ways for the Christian people as well. This is a major story that we're all familiar with, but there's stuff we're finding in here that's surprising us as we go along the way. And just to kind of bring you up to speed, we're in Exodus, the last half of Exodus 5 so far. We've found that the Israelite people have become kind of refugees. They're migrants. They're immigrants. They, there's a famine going on in, in, in Canaan where they were living. Now they've moved to Egypt because they're migrants. They're, they want their families to survive. They're starving. So they move to Exodus as migrants, as refugees. And it goes well for them for a while until the wrong leader comes into power. This New Pharaoh comes onto the scene. He does what many selfish, maniacal, violent, self-centered, self-serving leaders do, leaders of great big empires. They see a people that they can take advantage, and they do it. The Pharaoh sees these Israelite people, and they're becoming numerous, and they're multiplying, and he's saying, I want to build some cities with these people. I want to exploit these people. I want to... Op- Use these people to build my empire. See, evil, maniacal leaders oppressing whole entire people groups is nothing new. It's as old as the story of Exodus. And we see the people of God. What we don't realize over and over again is in the Old Testament, the people of God are not this highly favored people like we talk about. The people of God, the Israelites, are more often than not Exiles, migrants, refugees, under the thumb of the empire over and over again. And this is where we find the Israelites in this story. They're under the thumb of another maniacal evil leader. But God hears their cries. He hears their, God hears their prayers. He calls this person Moses to, to, to save his people. Moses doesn't even know Yahweh. He knows all these Egyptian gods. He doesn't know Yahweh, but... Yahweh makes his, reveals God's self to Moses, reveals God's self to, by name, by Yahweh, this name that I'm going back and forth between Yahweh and God, because this is what God announced God's name is, is Yahweh. I am, I am present with my people. And now, Moses, I want you to go and save my people and deliver my people. And Moses says over and over again, thanks, but no thanks. I'm glad that you want to save those people, but you've obviously got the wrong guy, Yahweh, if that really is your name. But over and over again, Yahweh doesn't give up on Moses, and he says, I've called you, Moses, to lead my people into freedom. So Moses finally relents and finally says yes, he gives in. Aaron, his brother, comes along the way. Moses' main fear is that the Israelite people, the people that he's supposed to deliver, aren't going to believe that he had this actual supernatural encounter with God. Turns out, they do believe him because he performs these signs and miracles and wonders, and the Israelite people are like, yes, yes, God sees us, and he's going to deliver us. You perform these miracles. We believe you, Moses. Praise Jesus. And a big worship service breaks out. This is the end of Exodus 4. Then we're on this beautiful high. Everybody's super excited. Moses marches into the courts of the most powerful man in the world thinking this is going to be a really easy project. And he says, Pharaoh, it's time for you to let the Israelites go. Yahweh has appeared to me. The Yahweh, by the way, is the God of the Israelites. You might need to know that. And he wants his people back. And you think it's going to be as easy as that. You just ask Pharaoh for God's people back, and he's going to do it. And Pharaoh says, A, I never met any God named Yahweh. Don't know who Yahweh is. And B, don't care. 
Don't give a rip. As a matter of fact, I like the Israelites. They are convenient. Have you seen how many of them there are? Have you seen the awesome cities they're building? There's not a chance I'm going to give them back. By the way, also, just because you're so arrogant and you, you, you have the audacity to come before me and, and ask me to give these people up, I'm going to double their work for nothing. So Pharaoh doubles their work. We saw this last week. And, and the, is, the Israelites, when they thought they were going to be delivered, things just get twice as bad for them. Has anyone ever been in a moment like that? where things literally go from bad to worse. You're hoping for healing. You're hoping for a miracle to happen. And maybe even you've been encouraged by God that maybe this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen. Things go from bad to worse from the Israelites, and what they wind up doing is blaming Moses and cursing Moses, as a matter of fact. And this is where we pick up our story today. So let's open up. We're in Exodus 5. Moses just had the euphoria of declaring to the people that God has has seen your oppression and he's going to deliver you. They had a great time, super fun for Moses to be the leader when it's good news, and all of a sudden the news gets bad and he's been cursed. And so Moses has a bone to pick with Yahweh. This is Exodus 5.22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak, to, speak in your name, pay attention to these words, ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. I'm sure Moses is thinking, it would have been nice if I could have seen what you're going to do to Pharaoh about three days ago. Remember that when I marched into Pharaoh's courts? Me, a normal person who has no right to walk into the courts of the most powerful man in the world, and I told him your message, Yahweh. I told him that you want him to let the people go, and he didn't do it. Why am I supposed to believe you now? The Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenants. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob. Do you hear the the personification there? I swore with uplifted hand. So help me God. I will bring you into the land 
that I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will give it to you as a possession, for I am Yahweh. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to the, to the Isra- let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And here's a genealogy. Super fun stuff to go through. I'm not going to read through all of it. I'm just going to read the first couple of verses, and then we're going to skip, and I'm going to allow you to read through it. We're going to revisit this, all right? Now everyone got excited for this sermon. Genealogy coming up. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanak and Palu and Hezron and Carmi. These were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, blah, 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 blah. These were the names of the sons of Levi. And then it goes on, Gershon, Kohath, Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon by the clans Libni and, and Shimei. Shimei, the sons of Kohath, who was a son of Levi, if you don't, if you don't remember, were Amram, Izhar, Hebron and Uziel. I didn't try to figure out how to pronounce these names right, just so you know, and I don't know innately because I'm a pastor. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari and the sons of Mali and the sons of Mushi. These were the clans of Levi according to their records. Amram married his father's sister, Joshebed, who bore him. Yes, he married his father's sister. That's what it says when we talk about biblical marriage. We run into problems. I'm not going to preach a sermon on that. I'm just pointing the truth out. Son of Kohath was, a, was named Amram. Then Amram married his father's sister, Joshebed, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years, and then it goes on. And finally it ends. It says, the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkina, and Abisaph. These were the sons of the blah, blah, blah. And then it says, Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. Now, Phineas was actually Aaron's grandson, not his son. It's a weird little order. We're going to revisit this one in, in a couple of minutes. Just, just trust me on that. These were the heads of the Levi families, clan by clan. It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, this is verse 26, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, the same Moses and Aaron. That now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt and he said to him, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, everything I, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? This is so repetitive. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and to your your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, though I will multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment, and I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now that whole section seems quite repetitive, doesn't it? I want you to try to imagine, what, what, what would I preach about if I were Pastor Randy? Don't call me Pastor Randy, by the way, just call me Randy. 
This whole section is basically a repetition of what we got at Mount Horeb. It's God speaking to Moses and saying, hey, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do to Pharaoh, and by the way, I'm going to do it with a mighty arm and an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. There's phrases are repetitive, and the ideas are repetitive, and God going to, to, to the Israelites is repetitive, and God telling Moses and Aaron, go to Pharaoh. It's all repetitive. So what's going on here? The first thing that we find that's interesting that I want to call our attention to is the first idea here in Exodus 5.22. Moses returned to the Lord, it says. Moses returned to the Lord. First question there that I have, and that many scholars have, is what does it mean that Moses returned to the Lord? Moses, if you remember, the people curse Moses and Aaron, say you guys have, have, actually, I don't believe that you're from God anymore. I think that you're from Satan and cursed them because he doubled their work. And now Moses returns to the Lord. Does Moses return to the Lord means that Moses went back to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb to, to visit God where he first encountered Yahweh to do some business? We don't know. Did Moses return to the Lord mean that he returned to the Lord in prayer? Probably not, because this is not like one of those prayers where he's on his knees asking God to just like, do something, say something, would you please? Have you ever had prayers like that? We don't know exactly what's going on here where it says Moses returned to the Lord. We don't know the exact circumstances, where Moses was, how this happened, because here's the deal. The writer isn't concerned with those details. Over and over again, we're going to find this reality that we've got questions that the ancient readers of this probably didn't. We've got questions about the text that the author just isn't interested in giving us. And here's the main reason why. Does, let's see how well you've been paying attention, friends. What do you think the reason is, is that the, this reality that we have questions that the authors of the book of Exodus don't give us? Why is that? I'm asking a real question now. What do you think? Just a second, Brandon. What, Eagle? They didn't have the same questions as us. What were you going to say, Brandon? Like different genre, like different audience at the time. You both are getting at, I think, what we said a number of times here. Here's the deal. We read differently than people did five, six, seven thousand years ago. We understand stories and, and process stories differently than people did several thousand years ago. We want details of stories that are different than the people who wanted details of stories several thousand years ago. See, the writer of the book of Exodus, or if we're going to be a little bit more accurate to what scholars believe the writers of the book of Exodus, didn't care about giving us these details. Because as I said in the beginning of this sermon series, the book of Exodus is not just a pure book of history to let us know the exact details of exactly how this happened, when it happened, all the things that us modern Americans want to know about a story. We don't get those details. Because that's not what this story is about. See, the story is about the author is trying to get us to understand who this God is. This is theological history, not just pure history. 
This is not just some unbiased take on history, even though there is no unbiased take on history. The, 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 the author is simply not interested in some of the questions that we have as modern American Christians, and we just have to be okay with that. That's what just comes with the nature of studying a book that was written thousands of years ago, that we're trying to still to understand and uncover truths and mysteries about, and there's all sorts of mysteries about it. What does it mean that Moses returned to the Lord? We don't know. But the important thing is this conversation that we see between Yahweh and Moses. Then we get this repetitive thing where, well, first of all, let me backtrack before we get to the name. We have this game that starts to be played, and we're going to get really familiar with this game in the book of Exodus. And it's called, maybe you have an elementary, if you have an elementary age kid, you're going to be really familiar with this game. It's called the blame game. Now, I wouldn't know about this at all, but typically when kids get in trouble, their instant, what's the instant thing they do with their bodies? Vroom! Their arm goes straight out. <laughs> Why in the world were you doing that? Because Johnny told me to, Dad. Right? We play this blame game, and we instantly are starting to blame other people. So when, the, when, when Pharaoh loses his mind and doubles the work of the Israelites, what do the Israelites do? They blame Moses and Aaron, of course. And then Moses returns to Yahweh, returns to God in prayer, and instead of saying, God, just please convince the Israelites, Moses goes, what in the world are you doing, Yahweh? Moses returns to the Lord and says, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? See, the Israelites blame Moses, and Moses, who does Moses blame? Yahweh. They don't understand that it's not my fault. I didn't even want to be here in the first place, right? What are you doing, God? He instantly starts playing this blame game and, and pointing in, in what we find in verse 22. Moses says, why the Lord have you brought me, but why have you brought trouble on his people? Is this why you sent me? Translators say that it would be better even put, why in the world have you sent me, God? Why in the world have you sent me? Is this why you sent me to embarrass me and to have me be the laughingstock of the people and to be, have me rejected from the people that you've called me to save? Is this why you sent me? Why in the world have you done this? This blame game is something that we're going to see over and over again in the book of Exodus. And then we get to more repetitiveness that we looked at. God said to Moses in verse 2, I am Yahweh, I'm the Lord. I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, as God Almighty. But my, by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them, blah, blah, blah. There's a couple of things here that scholars have been trying to figure out. First thing is, is that haven't we already found out the name of God? Moses, as he was interacting with God at the burning bush on Mount Horeb, he goes before God and God says, here, I'm going to re reveal to you my name. It's Yahweh. This is my name that I should be known for all generations moving forward. And then all of a sudden Moses returns to the Lord in Exodus 6, and he says, oh, by the way, again, I want to tell you my name is Yahweh. 
Scholars have been trying to figure this out for decade upon decade. Centuries, scholars have been arguing about this. There's controversies about this. Why does God give his name a second time? There's a number of reasons, but one of them is pointing back to who wrote the book of Exodus. Let me, let's just see who's, who's been listening. Who wrote the book of Exodus? Did Moses write the book of Exodus? Good job. Everyone's shaking their head. No. For some of you, if this is your first time this, this Sunday, you thought Moses was the writer of the whole first five books of the Bible called the Torah, the Pentateuch. Scholars think probably not. Who wrote the book of Exodus? It's probably several, four different school, rabbinical schools, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. We'll get that, to that in one of our Q&As coming up. But there's multiple authors of the book of Exodus, and they've, the editors have brought it all together, and this is one of those, those points in the narrative where they say this is why it seems like there's multiple writers, is because there's multiple stories being told that the same thing's happening. See, from one rabbinical school, Yahweh revealed his name perhaps in Exodus 3 and 4, but for this other rabbinical school, Yahweh's revealing his name in Exodus 6. And these numbers and chapters weren't divided like this, but it's still the sequential story, and it's synthesizing multiple different rabbinical schools who've told the same story in different ways. This is one of those clues we get as to who wrote the book of Exodus and who didn't write the book of Exodus. And why there's some of this confusion is because there's different rabbinical schools, ancient Jewish rabbinical schools, who've wrote about the same thing happening. But here's another thing that's happening with this naming of God. It ties into this bigger picture that I want us to see this morning. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but my, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners, but moreover, I heard their groaning of the Israelites, the, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, I will bring you up from the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and a mighty axe of judgment. Here's a big, huge theme throughout the book of Exodus that we get to, for the first time here, that we're going to find as we move along throughout this book. It's that God is teaching the Israelite people about how to be the people of God. That's a huge part of the story of the book of Exodus. God's taking this nation of slaves who don't really know God in the first place. And he's in, God's introducing God's self to these Israelite people, and he's building trust. And God's making God's name known to them, and he's revealing God's self to them in ways that even the patriarchs didn't get. Did you hear this kind of progression of revelation? I appeared to your forefathers, to the patriarchs, but I'm going to do something different in this generation. Some scholars would call this generation the Exodus generation. And I don't like talking about generations because usually that's what charismatic pastors do who talk about the special favor on certain generations. It's just that there's God's doing something new and different and bigger with this generation than he did with the patriarchs. There's this progression of revelation that's happening. Are you still with me? God's saying, I revealed myself like this to the patriarchs, but I'm going to reveal myself in a new way to the people of Israel now, to this nation of slaves. And then we get to this genealogy, this part where we all hope I just skim over and say it doesn't matter. 
but that's not the way it goes. So why is this genealogy here? Why, why, why do we have to sleep through this? this or, did I say sleep through this? It reminds me of the old, anybody love, I love White Christmas. Anybody like White Christmas? Remember that scene where Bing Crosby's with Rosemary Clooney in the train car, she can't sleep, and he's got this crooner's voice. I can't even get that low. And he counts his blessings. They sing the song about counting their blessings. That's how I love to fall asleep. If you have trouble falling asleep tonight, turn to Exodus 6 and start reading this genealogy. There's no fancy Christmas song. When I can't sleep, I read the genealogy. Go ahead, try it. Why is this genealogy here? There's always a reason that this stuff is in the scriptures. Here's a, the first clue that we get as to why the genealogy here, is here. Did you get the, the repetitiveness when I read verse 10 through 12 of chapter 6? It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? And then it goes into the record of this genealogy. Then as you go to verses 28 through 30, it says this, Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Those are repetitive verses. Those are basically saying the exact same thing, and here's the deal. That's a clue to scholars that say, oh, there's this, this concept called framing happening here. When the verses in front of the genealogy say one thing and the verses right after the genealogy say the exact same thing, that means it's framing and telling us why the story is here. Many scholars believe, most scholars believe, that this, this genealogy is here to vouch for the pedigree of Moses and Aaron. And in particular, it's vouching for the, the credentials of Aaron in case there's any questions, in case the Israelites want to curse the leaders again, in case they want to reject Moses and Aaron. This is this God vouching for this, the scripture writers saying this is why Moses and Aaron were, were, were the leaders in who they were. This is vouching for Aaron actually in particular. If you read, let's, let's go through this genealogy just a little bit. These were the sons these were the, let's see. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, this is in verse 13. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites, the king of Egypt. He commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of the families, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. And it goes on, the sons of Simeon. And then it goes on to the sons of Levi. And then it just stops. We know that there were 12 sons of, of Jacob or of Israel, but it stops with Levi. And it goes into Levi even deeper. And then it says that Kohath was a son of Levi who came into Egypt with his father Levi. We know this because of the end of the book of Genesis. That's accurate. But then it says that Kohath was the father of Amram. And Amram was the father of Moses and Aaron. So it sounds like Kohath who came into Egypt with Jacob is the grandfather of Moses. But we know that's most likely not true. Why? Because there's about 350 years that go by between the Israelites entering Egypt with Jacob and Levi and Kohath who came into Egypt from fleeing as refugees from the famine and Moses. There's about 350 years between Kohath and Moses. And we don't believe that Kohath lived that long and was a grandpa at age 350. What we believe is happening is that 
the writer of the, of the book of Exodus skipped several generations. Turns out there's, this isn't just an Ancestry.com thing happening for Christmas. I'm sorry if I ruined anybody's Christmas present. Come and tell me if you get an Ancestry.com present for Christmas. I want to know. But this isn't one of those Ancestry.com moments where we're trying to connect exactly who are the names who are my grandparents and then my great-grandparents and then my great-great-grandparents and then, oh, Kohath is all the way back there. They skipped several generations. Why is that? Because the biblical writers weren't interested, we don't believe, at giving us this Ancestry.com information, they were interested in showing us the Levitical heritage of Aaron. See, if you look, it basically is trying to connect and fast forward from, from Kohath to, Abraham, to, to Moses and, and Aaron. And then it even goes further, and it says, Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel. She bore him Phineas. These were the heads of the clans of Levite families, clan by clan. The reason that Phineas is there is because he's Aaron's grandson, who was high priest of the people of Israel. So this genealogy goes back in time, and then it also looks forward, past Moses and Aaron, into Aaron's grandson. And what he's trying to tell us is God in his saving action works in the past and God's saving action and salvation works into the future. It's trying to tell us God's teaching his people how God works and it's saying that I was faithful to your ancestors and I'm going to be faithful to your sons and daughters and your grandsons and daughters and your great-grandsons and daughters. I am a faithful God. God is trying to teach the Israelites and teach Moses and Aaron even This is how my salvation works. It goes into the past before you even existed, and it will go on after you. God is trying to teach his people that you can trust me. And he's also trying to teach his people this is who Moses and Aaron are. They are connected to the Levites. You can trust them. These genealogies have purpose. But as we sit now and, holy cow, it's 11.22. As we think about this passage that's repetitive, that has a genealogy in the middle of it, that might be one of the, the worst sermons to preach in the book of Exodus so far. There's been some good juicy texts, right? There's been some tasty business to go through. This one right here this morning is quite repetitive. It's quite dull. It has a genealogy in the middle. So what do we have to learn from this text here? The first thing that is going to be pointing us to what I think we have to learn is Moses and his journey with Yahweh. As we see Moses interacting or returning to Yahweh, returning to God and talking with Yahweh and trying to figure out what's going on. I don't get it. I'm confused. Biblical scholars pretty much all agree that the Moses that we find here in Exodus 5, 6, and 7 is certainly not the bold, confident, trusted leader that Moses becomes at the end of Exodus. We're going to find a different, a different Moses. Moses is going to mature. Moses is going to gain an understanding. Moses is going to interact with the Israelites in a different way. Moses is going to start interacting with Yahweh in a different way. We're going to find it as we journey through this book. In other words... Moses is learning about Yahweh as he goes. When 
God appeared to Moses on Mount Horeb and in the burning bush and performed these miracles. He didn't give Moses this direct download that understands everything about who Yahweh is, how Yahweh can be trusted, how Yahweh is a God of salvation and will rescue his people. He didn't know anything. He just said yes. And now he's learning about who God is as he goes, and he's going to turn into a different person along the way of this journey. Are you following me? The Israelites, let's think about the Israelites. The Israelites, see, just like Moses is on a journey of discovery, the Israelites are on a journey of discovery. They know from stories that they've heard that this God, maybe named Yahweh, maybe not. Scholars are in, in, in debate about that, but they've, they've understood this God who appeared to their forefathers. It's the God who they're crying out to, maybe one of many gods, but this God hears them. But what we think is, what we think as we come to the scriptures is that the Israelite people knew everything there was to know about Yahweh, and they knew everything there was to know about how God operates and how God works in the planet, and that they can trust God. We just think that they got this direct download. But see, Israel themselves as a nation is on a journey of discovery about who God is, how God works in the world. And they're going to learn through being let down many times whether or not they can trust Yahweh, whether or not they can actually trust that God has their best in mind for them. And they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna act like petulant little children along the way. They're going to be prone to not believing. They're going to be prone to blaming God and blaming Moses and Aaron all along the way. But see, the book of Exodus, this is one of the huge themes of the book of Exodus, is God is turning this nation of slaves into a real nation, a real people who actually follow Yahweh and know what Yahweh is like and trust in, in who Yahweh is. They're learning as they go on the journey. They don't have this direct download, but see the book of Exodus is this journey of understanding and learning. And here's where we go back to the beginning of the message. Because see, so many of us think that Moses knew exactly who God was and what God had called him into and was certain of it from the very beginning. We find that's not the case. He didn't get this direct download, this operating system download. He had to learn along the way and grow in his trust, in his faith in Yahweh. Israelites were the same way. And guess what, friends? Here's the application part. You and I are on the same journey. We have gone to Sunday school. We've taken our confirmation classes. We've gone to more Bible studies than we can imagine. Some of us have read through the Bible in a year or in a couple of years. We've, maybe we've done that a couple times. We've read our way all through the Bible. I know the Bible. But see, what we find is that this is what it means. The book of Exodus is pointing us to this reality of this is what it means to follow this God named Yahweh, is it's a journey of discovery. Some of you know my spiritual director. He's also Shelley's and Randy's and my wife Sarah's. His name is Mark Werner. He was here sharing with us probably about a month and a half ago. And he calls, and I've told you this before, my spiritual director calls the Christian life something, and it's called, he calls it the good journey. This Christian life that we get to embark on 
So many of us see it as kind of a formula or a transaction. I said yes to Jesus, and Jesus gives me life. We're good to go. Or I said yes to Jesus, Jesus gives me life, and he downloads the direct download to me, and I know everything that I need to know about who God is and how God works and about the scriptures and all the things. See, the reason my spiritual director calls Christianity, the Christian life, the good journey is because it is just that. It's a journey, friends. Just like Moses had to actually follow Yahweh in such a way that he's learning whether or not he could trust God. And just like the Israelites are learning along the way whether or not they can trust this God, where they can, should follow this God, we are on this good journey. We haven't been given this, this, this direct download. Too many of us are too arrogant to think that we understand it all. We understand God. And if, if I get any new information or I have to process anything new that, that doesn't compute, there's heresy going on there. But see, what we find, friends, is that this has been going on since the very beginning in the book of Exodus is God brings his people, God brings God's people on this journey. For these people thousands of years ago, it was on this journey out of slavery and into freedom, out of, out of Egypt and into this new land. For Moses, it's bringing him out of shepherding flocks in, in, the, in the desert, in the wilderness, in incognito ways, and into being the leader of this people. And he's learning along the way in progressive revelation, tr- understanding more and more about who God is, and he's becoming a different person along the way. How many of us have that same story? I want to say too few of us. See, because we have this arrogance that says that I know everything that there is to know about God. I know the Scriptures. I'm just here to have everything confirmed. Are you here to have everything confirmed? See, this is the beauty of the church, friends. This is why I'm I'm still doing this job. It's because I believe that we are on this good journey and that we get the beauty and the excitement and the privilege and the, and, and the goodness of being able to be together as we move towards Jesus together, growing in understanding, growing in whether or not we can trust this God, that God won't let us down. Some of you are in moments in life right now where maybe you can resonate a little bit with Moses and the Israelites. You're dealing with feeling like you've been let down. Maybe you're dealing with feeling like you've been overlooked or forgotten, or you're just in that moment where it's raw. You, the loss has happened. Disillusionment has happened. Maybe the dreams and the longings that you've had for a long time, none of them are coming to fruition. And maybe you've had these same exact conversations that Moses has been having with God in our text. Why in the world do you do this to me? Is this why you did? Is this why you called me? Is this what, what you promised me to just let me down again? And what we're finding is that we have a God who's patient and leading us on this good journey, friends. This is, this is one of the things that we get to pull out of the book of Exodus is that God, God is calling us and inviting us into this lifelong journey to be lifelong learners to learn along the way and to make mistakes and to stub our toes and to to question God even sometimes, to doubt God sometimes, to question whether God is really real sometimes, to question if really God is going to hold up God's promises that God said sometimes. All of this stuff is the stuff of the good journey, friends. 
where we get to learn from one another. And we get to learn from the scriptures. And we get to learn from these ancient stories in order to form us as a people and to grow us and mature us and to, to, to grow along the way into this point where we're growing in confidence and we're leading other generations. This is the story, not where we get this direct download, but where we learn along the way. God, I'm, Yahweh, the same God who spoke to the, to the Israelites, this Yahweh, the same God who, who called Moses into really unlikely situations, the same God who called Moses over and over again to stick his neck on the line, who, who felt like Moses felt like was, he was disappointed by Yahweh, we come before you this morning. And we ask you to invite us all over again to step forward in this good journey of following you, Jesus. Would you take the pressure off, Holy Spirit, for those of us who feel like we need to know everything, who feel like we need to understand everything, who feel like we need to dot all our I's and cross all our T's, would you take the pressure off and let us enjoy this reality of walking and following you in a way that we discover more and more about you each and every moment, each and every, that every year is going to be different and every decade is going to be different. Every season of life, you're calling us and inviting us into following you more and trusting you more. And, and saying yes to you more and more along the way, that there's not this moment where we say yes and get this download, but that we are on this journey together. Would you mold us and shape us as a people, just like you did to the Israelites, God, where you were teaching them along the way and growing and shaping and forming them as a people? Would you do that for us as a church family? Would you give us the humility to know that we don't know everything there is to know about you? Would you give us the a hunger and a passion and a thirst for you, Jesus. That in our doubts, and in our questions, and in our grief, in our loss, in our angst, that we can turn to you over and over again and that we can have a community of people. Would you knit us together as a community of people that embrace one another and walk towards you together. And when we can't walk, we let others carry us. Would you help us to be a church that reflects this good journey, God? That are a church full of learners rather than a church full of knowers. A church full of people who want to, to be students of Yahweh rather than experts. Would you form us and shape us and teach us along the way through the, the, the Israelite people who we resemble in ways that we don't even want to name? I'm grateful for this journey, God. I'm grateful that I get to stand here as a pastor at 45 years old, and I feel like I've, you've brought me so far in the last 10 years, and you've brought me so far in the last 20 years that you've, you've brought new understanding and new revelation, and you've, you've taken away things that I, I thought I knew once. I've had to unlearn things in order to learn other things. I've had to let go of certain beliefs and certain things that I was certain were true. Would you, as a church, 
Teach us the humility that says we just want to be a church that's following Jesus. We want to be a church that's following, that are learners of this person, Jesus. And so, Jesus, we just sing to you one more time and sing in this reality that the seasons will come and go. Loss will come to us and seasons of abundance will come to us. And you are calling us and inviting us into the story even more. That the story that began with these ancient Israelites who were teaching about who you are, you're still continuing with us. That we stand in the line of ones who have gone before us and our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and generations will come after us. And this story continues of this faithful God who loves to save his people because that's just who this God is. So let's stand and sing one last time, friends, about this journey, this seasons of change, but this Jesus who doesn't.